wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc, and this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. And I say that every episode, but this time we're talking about something that grandmas or granddads don't have to face. We're talking about what it's like when cancer takes away your ability to have children or grandchildren and and how challenging that can be to talk about. And it can be quite an isolating experience because out there there's quite a bit of awareness of what it is to want to be child free um, and what it is to maybe be infertile but keep trying for a rainbow baby um, whether that be through giving birth or adoption or surrogacy but not a lot of resources for people who that isn't on the cards for them. So I have two brilliant guests with me today. I have Terry Wingham, who was 30 when she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she's in Vancouver. She's joining us over Skype. And I have Claire with me in the studio. And Claire was 17 when she had um, an osteocarcinoma. Did I say that right? It's osteosarcoma. Really so, close. I knew, I knew I was going to mess that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and she was seventeen when she had that on her chest wall. Um, Terry, hi! Thank you so much for for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. And can I ask? So, what else was going on in your life when you were first diagnosed? Sure. I was 30 years old, uh, working as a headhunter in the technology industry in Vancouver, really at the height of my career and single at the time, although not by choice, um, but really focused on building my career and living my life and hoping to get married and start a family. So had you always pictured a family? Like, was that something that you'd always carried with you? I knew I wanted to be a mother um, from the age of nine and a half. Really? My parents, yeah, my parents brought my baby brother home from the hospital when I was nine. And I had two older siblings, but had always wanted a younger sibling. And so I claimed him as my own. He was, <laughs> he was my baby. And uh, so I was with him as much as I could be. And I did everything really that I could for him other than obviously, you know, I would watch my mother breastfeed and I would really equate that with motherhood and think, you know, one day that will be me. Yeah, that's that's such a powerful image of like just really wanting and craving that from such an early age. Because I know a lot of people when they get a little sibling, that puts them off. You know, it's quite the opposite. And you know, perhaps the age gap helped. Yeah. <laughs> and so for you, was there a certain moment when you knew that you weren't going to be a mother or was it more of a kind of an evolving process? It's been an evolving process. And I think for me, that process started even earlier than uh, my diagnosis at the age of 30. Um, My dad's family in Canada was part of uh, genetic study as one of the first 10 families studied in the country for the BRCA1 gene mutation. And so I learned at the age of 19 that I had the BRCA1 gene mutation and I started screening for cancer at age 23. And from from 
then on, really, the conversation was, when was I going to get a prophylactic double mastectomy so I wouldn't get breast cancer and, you know, that I would have to get my ovaries out at the age of 35. And so I spent my 20s grappling with those decisions and ultimately just wasn't ready to make them. You know, I really equated motherhood with breastfeeding from watching my mom and my younger brother. And so I just resisted making that decision. And I just thought, you know, maybe I'll do the uh, prophylactic surgery after I have kids. Um, but it was, you know, this sort of other shoe that I kept waiting for it to fall throughout my twenties and even still, you know, throughout my thirties from an ovarian perspective made it really tricky. So, so you were being screened and, and were very aware of your cancer risk. Um, and, and was it at one of those screenings that your cancer was picked up? It was. So I feel very fortunate that I was uh, part of this genetics surveillance program, essentially. And so I would have an MRI every year. And six months later, I would have a mammogram. And so I saw the genetics oncologist twice a year. And um, it was through an MRI that they picked up something in 2009. And I had initially a biopsy that came back negative. But it was really thanks to a radiologist who just didn't feel confident she had the right tissue sample and ordered an MRI-guided biopsy. And that's how my cancer was discovered. So I feel incredibly fortunate that that surveillance program meant that I was diagnosed at stage one, given that it was a triple negative grade three tumor. So very aggressive cancer that had I not been uh, screened, likely the end result would have been quite different. And knowing your risk factor before you were diagnosed, do you feel like that changed your experience of being diagnosed? You know, I thought that it would, you know, somehow I thought, well, I should have known and I would be mentally prepared for it. But I think it was so wrapped up in this dream I had for my life of motherhood that I was really angry when I was diagnosed because I I knew I was high risk and I thought I might get cancer, but I just assumed it would be once I was married and had a family um, and that maybe I would, you know, I would have had my kids and I would have had these preventative surgeries. So when it came at the age of 30, I was really blindsided by it and then sort of angry at myself for being shocked. You know, it's like, why are you shocked? (laughs) You've lived with this risk for a long time, but it just wasn't on my agenda. Yeah. And so the, when you were diagnosed, did it, then reframe your ideas around motherhood? Were you thinking that it still might happen? Or do you feel at that point that kind of a door started to close? I still was hopeful. You know, I was 30 and, um, you know, I'd been out for lunch with someone, a, a consultant of mine that I that I had placed into a job and happened to have a conversation with and this person said, you know, you should look at fertility preservation. And I didn't know anything about that. But I reached out to my oncologist and they referred me into a fertility clinic in Vancouver. And um, I went into those appointments and started exploring the process. But at the time, they said that the technology was such that embryos had a much higher likelihood of survival than eggs did. And I was so overwhelmed with the diagnosis and, you know, all that was coming at me that I just I couldn't bring myself to make a decision about a sperm donor. It just really felt really foreign to me. Um, Mm -hmm. But they did say that the chemotherapy was fertility sparing. And so there was a chance that even after 
chemotherapy, I might still be able to conceive naturally. And so I think for me, it's been this slow evolving um, resolution or I don't know, coming to peace with it. And mm-hmm. But I don't think you ever really um, get to a point where you think, oh, it's fine. Don't worry. Right. You know? I'm yeah. cool with it, you know, but I've slowly been able to accept um, that my path is different than I thought it would be. And I had to give myself permission to really grieve the loss of the life that I wanted in order to be able to accept a new version of my life. And it, kind of going into that grief, were there moments that you consciously allowed yourself to grieve or were there times that you caught yourself grieving and you didn't, it wasn't until after that you put two and two together? I think it was both. Um, And I really feel so much gratitude. I had a wonderful psychologist that I saw through treatment and continue to see her over time. And she really gave me permission to, to feel my emotions and to help me realize that she used to say to me, Terry, the only way out is through. You know, you have to allow yourself to feel this, that you can come through the other side of it. But, you know, there would still be moments and there still are moments where it catches up to you and you feel blindsided in the moment where you think, oh, I thought I'd process that. And you realize it's it's um, it's an evolution. You know, there's never a moment where it's all sorted and packaged up. Right. Neatly. And was there a moment that like surprised you where you had a reaction that you weren't expecting to something um, that was more challenging than you had anticipated? Yeah, I think it was really challenging for me in that period of going through um, the treatment and even, you know, going for an ultrasound on my breast um, and really being angry, thinking, you know, I really thought I'd be having an ultrasound on my uterus yeah. at this age, yeah. you know? And, and I was at the age where my friends were getting married and having kids and I really was happy for them and so desperately sad for myself at the same time. And so I found myself in a pretty dark place because it just seemed so cruel, especially maybe people who didn't know that they really wanted kids, you know, and then suddenly they were pregnant and I just was so sad for myself that I thought, you know, you didn't even know if you wanted it. Um, you know, my sister is shockingly fertile. (laughs) She's, she had three three children in pretty quick succession. And I know for her, you know, we're really close. And, and it was hard for me that she was having a family so easily. And she was exhausted from having these three young kids. And so there was those moments where I, I really valued being the aunt, and I continue to value that. And it was still hard. Yeah, it's, it's that moment with the ultrasound, I can so relate to. Um, because th- there are these moments that, in my mind, that is sort of like a, a timeline that has diverged. And there is these v- visual things like the ultrasound that m- link you to the life that you thought you were going to have. I know when I had my ovaries taken out, I was having a really hard time recovering. It was, um, yeah, super challenging. I just wasn't coming out from the anesthesia really well. It was you know, after chemo and radiation and everything. And um, and so they very kindly put me in a private room. And so I woke up and it was signs on the walls of how to hold your baby. Mm-hmm. And they'd put me in a room that they would put a mum right after she had given birth with all the signs and the equipment and everything. And it was like waking up to a horror, um, mm-hmm. but also like, 
this could have been my room um, in my alternate timeline. Do you, do you think about the mother that you would have been? Do you ever, does your brain ever go there? You know, I, I don't know that I let myself go there too much, you mm-hmm. know? And, and I think in some respects, I feel so grateful that I had this connection to my younger brother because when I was 16, 17 at home um, for the summers, you know, I took care of him. I made dinner for the family. I did the laundry. Like in some respects, I was a stay at home mom for a couple of summers. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and you know, he, he will say to this day, he's now almost 31. And he would say, you know, when he had a bad dream, he would come and crawl into bed with me because he wanted me to comfort him. And so I feel fortunate that I had those flashes mm-hmm. of what it might be. Um, and I think yeah, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the nuts and bolts of what kind of mother I would be, but I think I bring the same sort of nurturing personality and perspective to the work that I do. And so in many ways, I get to mother people, even if they're not children, which I would imagine I would mother children in a similar way. And the work that you do, do you uh, have you spoken about this particular um, topic? Because uh, the reason I ask is that I know that even within the cancer community, there's not necessarily always, it, it can be challenging. I know like t- you mentioned talking to a therapist about it, but have you talked to other people um, about n- not being a parent, that particular element of grief? I have, but it's only now that I'm becoming you know, I'm, it's interesting because I facilitate programs to help people heal the emotional scars of cancer. And part of our model is that as a facilitator, you're willing to be vulnerable and share pieces of your story because I think it creates an environment where then other people feel safe to open up and share their story. And so I've shared pieces of it, but I also believe as a facilitator, it's not the participant's job to help me process my own experiences. I only share things that I've processed enough to talk about with them. And so I think it's just now as I've turned 40, um, and for me turning 40 was somehow instrumental in me starting to realize that motherhood isn't going to happen. Because I think up until now, I had my fallopian tubes removed as a preventative measure, and I need to make a decision about when to have my ovaries removed, um, which is still not an easy decision for me. But I think something about that turning of the clock has helped me realize that, you know, it's, it's not in the cards for me in the way that I thought. And it's made me more willing to talk about it because Mm -hmm. I think it's such an isolating thing. And, um, yeah, I want other people to know that it's okay to grieve that. And, you know, the organization I run is called a fresh chapter and it's about helping people, move forward sort of with the next phase of their life. But you have to grieve the chapters that you thought you would have in order to step into a new version of your story. And so I really am at a place now where I I want to talk about it now that I've come to a greater degree of peace with it. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. Yeah, because otherwise it can feel very vulnerable, but not necessarily the safest kind of vulnerable to put it out Mm -hmm. there when you haven't sort of felt the edges of it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, like I think sometimes when you're in a position where you're often facilitating and helping other people, 
that um, I think sometimes it, it can be really hard to put things out there as well until you're putting them out, not packaged, but mm. thought through and so that you're not kind of having them land on other people. Um, but has anyone ever responded, not necessarily like, um, but out in the world, like when people say to you, oh, so do you have children? Um how how do you answer that question? It's interesting because I get that question a lot, and especially with the work that I do because we run volunteer programs in other countries and in many other cultures, it's completely foreign to not have children. Um, and so I'll get that question a lot. Are you married? Do you have children? Why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in some regards, it's made it easier for me because I realize that culturally that in some of these places, that's just a normal means of conversation. And so it's prepared me for when I'm um, in the US or Canada and I get that conversation or get that question. Um, but I, yeah, the, I, I often get the question, why not? Um, and you know, I, I think I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and her work on, on vulnerability. And she talks about, you know, people have to earn the right to hear elements of your story. And so um, if I'm talking to someone that I, that I don't know well and they ask me that, Um, I brush it off a little bit because I don't think it's their business to know the pain that I have around that topic. Mm -hmm. But if it's somebody who's been through something in their life or they have their own grief, I think it's a really wonderful opportunity to build a connection and to help someone else feel less alone. So I really gauge my audience in terms of what I share. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because those conversations, they can be so intrusive, can't they? And people can say the most random stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, I, I think it is quite good, especially like if someone's kind of at the beginning of, of realizing that children aren't on the cards for them, almost to have like a guide for how to deal with those questions. And I really liked what you said about yeah, you know, the cab driver um, doesn't necessarily don't have to <laughs> disclose, um, you know, but if if you think it's someone that, yeah, you'd like to open up a bit more to. Um, I I have had the, the oddest <laughs> things like when I've said that I couldn't have children. I had one lady um, say, oh, well, my brother married a woman that couldn't have children. And you know what? He stayed with her. really (laughs) um yeah yeah so it's it is sometimes i think before you you know i think we we need people in our lives that we we can say things to unfiltered right it doesn't have to be processed yet that that they get us raw and then there are times because of how you mentioned like cultures and societies see women that don't have children and it is almost this open discussion um, that that we also can protect ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think the path is different for all of us. And so giving ourselves permission to feel whatever we're feeling and to choose who we let in and when we do and um, and that it's okay to, to say to someone, I'm not going to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, people say like the worst thing sometimes or that like you know there's lots of ways to have a family oh thank you so much you know <laughs> so I wouldn't have thought of that on my own because <laughs> it, it doesn't it always come with the phrase so have you ever thought about adoption right yeah it does. yeah 
Yeah, and, and I think it when people do that, it it minimizes, you know. And one of the things we talk a lot about is this idea of holding space for people, this this ability to be present with someone's grief, be present with their story without trying to fix or editorialize it or give suggestions. And I think so often when it comes to this discussion about motherhood, people aren't comfortable with other people's grief and pain. And yeah. so they say something so that they don't have to feel it alongside you, which is the opposite of what most of us need as humans. We need to be heard. Yes. Um, no, but then you can't, people can't give you what they don't have. And so, you know, when, the, when you see that coming, you know, for me, I just put my wall up and say, oh yeah, here's somebody who's going to give me <laughs> useless <laughs> information. And it's not their fault. That's just where they're at in their life. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we, I, I aspire to, <laughs> to have that that viewpoint. I know that sometimes, um, and Claire, l- let me know w- what you think with this, is that um, it, sometimes I feel like that question is so loaded with um, judgment um, that it's kind of like, well, don't complain because if you're not adopting, then you're not really trying to fix the problem. And therefore, it's kind of like, okay, the end of the story. And there's a little part of me that is like, are they right? Are mm. they, you know, did did I do everything? And I know in a logical sense, I did everything. But um, I don't I don't always get to separate it out onto them. I know that sometimes that question sends me into a little bit of turmoil. Um, yeah, I think it's when when someone says something that perhaps you've thought about yourself that you haven't quite processed or you haven't quite come to terms with, like, have I done everything I could have? Is there more I could have done? Should I have lived my life differently so that my situation was different, so it might have been easier? If those are questions you have asked yourself at any point, hearing them said by someone else, I find, can really... I mean, I know they I know they mean well and it's it's not kind of meant as a dig but it just makes you re-question I think it, it, it can can yeah, it it can do yeah, yeah it, so yeah it, yeah and it's triggering right those kind of questions can be really triggering for us mm-hmm. um so I yeah I absolutely relate and and I think for me it's um it's whenever I have the conversation about ovary removal because it's also preventative and everybody's got an opinion about mm-hmm. when I should do it and um, you know, being lectured by people about my my life and my decisions, I find, you know, I makes me really angry and really triggered. Um, and so I can so relate. And when when that happens, do you do you extricate yourself from the conversation or do you let them know? I guess the answer to that it depends on who it is, you know. And so if it's somebody um, who is going to be in my life. You know, I had this uh, fight with one of my cousins about this a few years ago. And so somebody like that, I'm going to educate them and I'm going to stand my ground. But somebody who I might meet at a at a conference or I might meet in passing, um, for me, it's not worth the energy to try to change their mind or convey my point of view. It's just going to make me angry and exhausted. And so in that regard, I I usually shut it down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it really difficult because I'm not a confrontational person. Like, I, I don't find it easy to challenge anyone, like, at the best mm-hmm. of times, let alone at a time <clears throat> when it's about 
something that I feel a bit shaky about myself. So I've got that that internal voice going, don't have this conversation because you'll end up in messy tears and no one wants to see that. And like, (laughs) you know, you really start kind of talking yourself out of having the conversation because it feels easier. In the long Mm. run, it's not easier because you've never, you're never having the conversations and you're never, you're never, or I am never sort of opening up. So it, it doesn't help. But short term thinking goes, let's just you know finish this conversation as soon as possible not let them know I'm upset very British <laughs> and and just get on with it and pretend I'm fine um, so yeah I need it's something I'm really aware that I'd like to it's almost like practicing isn't it with people who you really yes. do trust yeah um certainly not the uber driver who asks you whether you want kids or not unless you want to really practice on someone that you're probably never going to see again it might affect my rating though so yeah i um i have taken the um the thing of when someone has asked me a question i'm like okay i'm gonna give you the answer and maybe you might not not like it but i sometimes have wondered whether it like there's a little bit of defensiveness in there that happens but you know um when people start talking about adoption I'm like have you ever thought about it (laughs) (laughs) tell me tell me how you yeah like I get a little bit you know um and you know and do you think that the adoption agency is going to give me a child (laughs) You know, and that makes them stop in the tracks because it's yeah. like they just think that you just walk in somewhere and mm-hmm. walk out with a kid. And that's that's right. something that really uh, irritates me because there is a there is a sense of, well, yeah, if if you really wanted a kid, you'd go down this route. And I'd be like, as a single person with an ongoing health problem that is progressive, without my own house, like then that's just never going to happen at the moment. Right. Like I'm, you know, but. The reality is it's not it's not an option for many, 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 many. people. Yeah. And the assumption it's it's just like all the other assumptions about having children that, that the world has. Mm-hmm. Um it's another one that people get really wrong. And maybe it yeah, maybe maybe it would be nice to educate people a little. Because I, I I think um yeah, they don't necessarily know what what they're saying when they say that. Mm. It's no. it's just like, oh well, you're a person that wants a child. There's a child that wants a parent surely you guys yeah. can just get together and figure it out yeah. but actually you know you hear about people that you know were maybe not ready to adopt or maybe that wasn't you know and they end up with a child but they haven't actually grieved and this poor child is having to deal with now being taken in by a family that maybe weren't ready or a person that weren't ready to adopt but they're a filler for the child that they've never grieved that they didn't have um, which I think is just like such a loaded process. Like if you're ready to adopt, that's a very different process yeah. um, than, you know, but it's kind of, yeah, people want to like put them in. Okay, solved it now. Yeah. It's all good I now. Mean, I think it's like having children naturally, isn't it? If you get to 38 and you think I'm 30, I should have a kid because otherwise if your life is not ready for a kid, then it's maybe not a good idea. It's just like any, it's just the same process you're going through. You've got to be really ready and set up in the right position. Yeah, I totally agree that you do have to, you know, I, th- I think that's the thing is it's such a huge thing. You do have to be ready. And um, Terry, you have an organization that helps people kind of 
making that transition, that post-cancer transition to life going forward. Um, can you, and you mentioned it, it's called A Fresh Chapter. Um, can you tell us what you do? Sure, and I'd love to share sort of the origin of where it came from because it relates to this this dream of motherhood that I had. Um, but, you know, I was coming through treatment and, and I feel like I was really well supported while I was going through treatment. You know, people would bring over meals and take me to the doctor and I felt like they would show up physically. But I felt like the emotional aftermath of cancer caught up with me as the physical side was starting to subside. And I just was wildly unprepared for it. Had no idea um, that I would grapple with depression and survivor guilt and isolation and, and a lot of grief around motherhood. And and I think for me, you know, if we're talking about these choices about adoption or these choices that are not simple. I think there's also this challenge when what the vision I had for my life wasn't just being a mother, it was being part of a family. And I really wanted a partner and to have kids together and to sort of be this unit. That was always a piece of the dream in addition to just the part about motherhood. But I remember, you know, sitting in my apartment in Vancouver and just being really angry and devastated that my life had not turned out the way that I'd wanted it to. And um, I think probably I'd just gone through so many tears and, you know, Susan, my therapist, was probably right. Like, I finally came out the other side um, in that moment. I think I could come back into periods of grief about it. But in that moment, I had this this realization of, you know, I'm looking at my life about what's not possible. You know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. But what if I could turn it on its head and start to think about what is possible for me right now because my life hasn't turned out the way that I thought it would? And it was this idea of, writing a new chapter in my story and thinking about, okay, I can't change the chapters that have happened. The future plot that I had envisioned is gone. Um, but what could I do? And it was that idea of looking for inspiration and doing something that I never would have been able to do had I been married with kids that led me to a volunteer trip in South Africa. And so in 2011, I spent six weeks volunteering at an underfunded uh, daycare in one of the townships outside of Cape Town. Um, and then I, I took some money out of my retirement savings and I traveled through Namibia, Botswana and Zambia and I saw Victoria Falls, which had been a dream of mine. But it was that volunteering with these two and three year olds um, in Langa, the township, that shifted something in me. And I fell head over heels in love with a two year old and a three year old um, in that daycare. And I felt for the first time since I had cancer, I felt useful, I felt empowered, I felt like I had something to give, like I had the ability to nurture somebody else. And it was this experience that not only helped me heal, but it also gave me such deep perspective, you know, where I went into the experience really angry and disenchanted with my life. And I met people who I realized would trade places with me in an instant to have access to the opportunities I had simply because of where I was born. And I really saw the universality of struggle. You know, I saw mothers who struggled to feed and clothe their kids. I saw families who'd been uh, torn apart by HIV. I saw people who'd lived under incredible oppression during the apartheid era and still did, you know, deal with the aftermath of that. And I really, I really thought, wow, you know, yes, I'm allowed to be angry and sad and, and feel victimized by cancer, but what if I could 
do something with this possibility that I have because of where I was born, because I got access to free healthcare in Canada, and I had a job that gave me, you know, disability pay. And so I was in a position that I could do something new with my life. And that's what led to the creation of, of um, a fresh chapter as a nonprofit it started as a blog where I was writing about my life post cancer, but really this idea of how to help other people shift perspective through volunteering and through creating the safe environment to talk about the grief and to make space for both the highs and the lows in our lives. And so you know, that was 2011 when I went to South Africa. And in 2013, we piloted our first program in India, where we brought together 12 cancer patients and survivors for a two-week immersive volunteer and psychosocial support experience and a cultural immersion. And since then, we've just continued to grow to different countries, different types of programs. But at its core, it's about helping give people the space and permission to both grieve what they've lost and discover new perspectives and possibilities in their lives. Wow. I mean, that's incredible. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that, that, I mean, talk about holding space. I mean, what you're offering is space on both ends of the spectrums, not trying to squish one side and just have the momentum forward, but really to hold, yeah, to experience it all. Um, Mm -hmm. grief and possibility at the same time. That sounds incredible. And and it must be really rewarding for you. It's so rewarding because I think, you know, when when I, you know, I I don't know if you've read Simon Sinek's books about start with why and find your why. But I realized over this last 10 years that really my why in life is to create a sense of belonging for people. And I think, you know, I always thought I would do that inside a nuclear family and create that sense of belonging with kids and with a husband. Um, But I found that, you know, there's so many people who are looking for belonging or maybe haven't had the chance to be part of um, a family that brings them joy and really started to think about what, what if I could create a sense of family for people and, you know, to have participants, we now have over 225 alumni and one of our participants who traveled with us to South Africa last year was from Kenya and she'd heard me speak um, at a support group in Nairobi where I talked about my grief over motherhood because I felt like in that audience, that was something contextually that the people I was talking to would understand, regardless of, you know, their socioeconomic background or where they came from. Maybe they couldn't relate to, you know, the opportunity I had to give up everything and travel the world, but they could relate to grief over motherhood. And she ended up um, coming with us as a fellow on one of our programs. And she remembered my talk and she said, you know, Terry, in many ways, you're like a mother to me, even though I'm older than you. She was a breast cancer survivor in, in Kenya. And she said, because you've opened up the world to me, you're, you've made it possible for me to come to this new country and to learn and to grow and to experience new things. And you've challenged me to step outside my comfort zone and you've created a place for me to belong. And that just brought me to such tears because I really had never thought about it that way. And it made me realize that, yes, I still grieve that I don't have that nuclear family that I always wanted. And I don't think that pain ever fully goes away. But I know that if I did, if I was married and I did have kids and they were, you know, going to soccer practice and, you know, going, doing a homework, I wouldn't have this life. I couldn't 
travel the way I do. I couldn't build an organization that, you know, our vision is to scale to reach millions of lives and really help people beyond cancer, anybody who's been through grief, um, to be able to, to heal through volunteering and through finding that space to, to, for dark and light. And so I try to look at it from that context of, you know, maybe motherhood for me isn't what I pictured, but it doesn't make it any less valuable and important. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. And if um, someone's looking to find out more about your organization, where would they find you? Sure, we're at afreshchapter.com. Super. And are you on Instagram? We um, are. So we're at, on Instagram at afreshchapter, as well as um, my name, Terry Wingham, uh, with an I. Um, and, you know, we're going to be launching applications for our international programs again in January, but we're also expanding. We're, we're launching our first program in Kenya this September, where we're bringing together Kenyans affected by cancer and Americans affected by cancer and really working collaboratively on developing a toolkit where we take the resources and tools that we've developed over the last five years and we translate them for the Kenyan culture and really think about how do we work with Kenyan survivors to roll that out. Um, across the country, but we're also expanding an online version of our programming so that we can reach more people who wouldn't be able to travel. And so we'll have updates coming soon about ways to get engaged virtually in our program. Wonderful. I will definitely keep a lookout for those. Thank you so much, Terry, for joining us today. Really appreciated um, chatting to you. And yeah, I mean, you've really... um, created incredible experiences for other people and yeah given yourself so much space as well and it's it's really um it's really wonderful to hear well it's been such a pleasure to connect with you both and i look forward to one day hopefully hearing more about your stories because i can tell just from our limited interaction that they're powerful and inspiring stories so thank you both Oh, for, thank you. for speaking with me today. Yeah, and, and Claire's going to um, stay with me and we're going to hear more about Claire's story shortly. How was the experience of hearing Terry's story? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's always amazing to hear stories from other people who've gone through similar um, experiences, but equally sort of noting the differences as well. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how the practical differences don't seem to really matter when you're talking about the underlying feelings and the kind of internal responses you have. So really interesting. And and it's something that I don't really talk about that much. So again, really like kind of therapeutic in a way. Yeah. So so talking about talking about it. Yeah. Um have you spoken to people about how you felt about not being a mum? I not a lot. Like I have I've had um counseling therapy. Um I think it was it was really helpful because I actually trained in counselling for a bit and they kind of, <laughs> not forced, that's the wrong word, encouraged <laughs> to be in therapy yourself. And, um, and it's something that was really helpful because I don't know that I would have sought it out as an issue to talk about. Mm-hmm. Obviously going through kind of the impact of everything that's happened, it was, it was the first time probably, yeah, I'd ever said 
this is really difficult. <laughs> this is a big thing. Um, I think for me, partly because I was young when I was diagnosed. 17. Yeah. So it's quite a different experience to be told at 17 that your fertility might be affected. I think primarily just trying to put myself back there because um, you're not thinking about having babies. Mm -mm. Most people. I wasn't thinking about having babies at 17. And actually, I remember as a teenager growing up going, I don't want kids. What a pain. Like, because I'd had younger siblings who were quite a lot younger. And I'd like, they're fine, they're fine. I love them, but, you know. So quite um, different from Terry and her yeah, brother. Yeah, <laughs> like, I don't think it was a serious no. life vision. But I was definitely not... I, I wanted to be a city lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, kids don't fit in with that. I want to be wearing power suits and in business meetings. It wasn't about, like, a, a family life. But that's because I was 16, 17. You know, yeah. I, it was... A, it was I think your visions are driven by ambition and uh, mine was academics and it wasn't about settling down. Um, So at that point, I didn't actually have time to go through any fertility preservation. I needed chemo sort of to start immediately um, because I was quite unwell by the time I was diagnosed. So that that decision was taken out of my hands and it was a bit of a, well, let's wait and see what happens after treatment. This can be really detrimental to your you know it can it can wipe it out completely effectively the treatment I had so it was a sort of get on with it and see what happens afterwards and so it was something I knew was a possibility that it would be affected but then it was sort of gradually through my 20s as I had further tests that I discovered that it had been affected and then the extent to which it had been affected and then also the extent to which other things had been affected that would then impact the potential for adoption or you know other other um other kind of fertility treatment Mm -hmm. um so as a result of your treatment um you developed a lung yeah so um so i've got my my tumor was in my chest wall so i had a lot of radiation like sort of a couple of months of radiation and few surgeries on my chest and i developed this condition called bronchiectasis which can be kind of People can have it quite mildly, but I've got it over all of my lungs. So it kind of, the best way to describe people who, because it's something people haven't heard of, it kind of mirrors cystic fibrosis in the lungs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have the other systemic problems that CF has, but it's progressive and it's incurable. And um, at some point, I'll probably need a lung transplant from it. So it's a, you know, it's, it's not great, but... I've known about it for sort of... I've lived with it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, And I manage it on a daily basis. But it is something that does impact things like having other surgeries is kind of more dangerous for me because my lung capacity, getting infections is really dodgy. So going through a pregnancy, whether, you know, whether it was my exit, it's kind of not not on the cards at all. Um, So I guess, again, it was one of those realisations in terms of fertility, something that came slowly... And then over time, I've sort of looked at the various other options like a doc and realised it's got a slow dawning that that's probably not going to work either. Um, so, yeah, so it's been it's been an interesting journey. <laughs> yeah, I, I you know, when I was doing some research for for this episode and actually the last one about guilt, um, I discovered that um, so I had my ovaries taken out but then I had this opportunity to um to have 
IVF and put an embryo inside me. Um, and and I had one shot because it was really dangerous because my cancer was a hormone cancer mm. and they had pumped me full of the most amount of hormones yeah. possible. And it still wasn't enough. Um, and like the lining hadn't gotten thick enough. And, and so I went from... Um, being pregnant, losing the pregnancy, to being back in menopause, which is a hormonal slide that yeah. does not exist in nature. Oh, my goodness. Um, and and I processed that. It, it was interesting um, as almost like a grief that hung in, like, you know that um, Japanese picture of the wave yeah. about to crest, but it hasn't yet, just being suspended, that there was just this long period of time where I felt like this huge wave was going to come down, but there was this numbness, this stillness underneath. And right at that time, I started saying things. So the difference between um, uh, guilt and shame is a guilt whether real or imagined is around like an activity will you know well maybe if I had taken more magnesium or yeah. <laughs> you know should I have upped my folate or something that would be um sort of guilt um and so guilt is I you know I made a mistake and shame is I am a mistake and I realized that in that time was when I started calling myself medium shit yeah and um, walking around the world going, I don't have the worst luck. I just have medium shit luck. Medium shit. Medium shit. And perhaps a child shouldn't come into medium shit. So I am the problem. And it literally, like, I think sometimes griefs, when, they, when they're extended, so when you lose someone... Yeah. There, there can be numbness and, and grief can go on for a long time, but you kind of know roughly the rhythm of it but when you're dealing with an intangible grief yeah of something that you can't quite put it, it it's invisible um we often then don't necessarily recognize that we are grieving or that we have a shame around it no and there are so many things that i think like that kind of really negative internal monologue that says oh I'm rubbish and this is this is all about me and I'm a failure mm. that, that's a big one like being a failure as a woman because what, what, el what else are women for that's <laughs> a terrible statement but you know what I mean like it's part of being a woman is having babies and that's it feels like you're defective in some way I, I, I get that that word comes up for me like a yeah. sort of defective woman um, <clears throat> and they're all really like you, like, can you imagine if I'd said that to you about your situation? <laughs> you just wouldn't. It's just so unpleasant, really mean chat that we have with ourselves. Yeah, and I would never think <laughs> of you, you as defective. Do you know what I mean? In it's, any way, but it's, yeah, it's awful. But I do, I do think there's an element of sort of taking ownership of the problem that means that it feels less out of your control, which kind of, in some weird, perverse way, um sort of limits the uh, like it's not shock but the the fact it's been done to you is a thing that is kind of awful and scary you know that that this this the randomness was given you and, and you had nothing you had no control over you I had no choice I mean I suppose at 17 I could have chosen not to have treatment at all I would have kept my fertility but I pretty sure I wouldn't be here anymore so mm. it's not a choice is no. it so 
I think sometimes that it's all about me and and I'm not good enough to do this and my body has failed and it, it kind of is taking back in a weird way the sort of control over it because yeah. if it's about me then I know I know what and I know why the bigger picture of why me I mean that's that's always I mean that comes up for people all the time doesn't it when they get ill but it does and I think that that's where it also complicates things because so when people are dealing with involuntary childlessness because of a variety of different things that are not medical because actually most involuntary childlessness is not medical I think only 9% is oh, wow. so it's quite quite low a, a lot of it is people haven't um, been with a partner at the time that worked out when you're just dealing with that it's a big thing that again you can kind of um, you know what it is that you're dealing with but I think when it's in with cancer, it gets really muddy. Yeah. So when are you grieving the loss of being a parent? And when are you grieving the loss of that your life is now dominated by scanxiety yeah. or, or being reminded of your mortality and lots of the other ramifications of side effects and doctor's appointments and things bringing you back to that place? Um, that I think it it becomes, yeah, really muddy to yeah, know. Definitely. Definitely. Because like the number of losses that you have when you go through treatment is huge and you can just stack them up, like the loss of potentially career, the loss of independence, the loss of sort of the natural relationships you have with people that have shifted into this weird carer patient role. Or There's so many losses that you have. Mm-hmm. I've often found that I've thought about the, the fertility aspect and thought... How do I specifically grieve for that? Yes. Like, as opposed to the shit ton of other stuff that I'm also trying to, like, get my head around. And I almost want a kind of guidebook for, in order to grieve, not having a child, step one. Yes. Do this. Say this to someone and it will make you feel better. Because there isn't a handbook in it. No. And it would be really nice if there were, because you really feel like you're kind of feeling your way through. Mm-hmm. And it comes out in really weird ways. Really odd. <laughs> like, I remember, I, it was like there was an animal on television. It was something like a ferret that was giving birth. <laughs> and I suddenly got so jealous and angry. I was like, this, this, this small creature, this small furry creature gets to have children, yeah. just just gets to have them, yeah. just naturally in nature. Didn't even know what it was doing. No, just, just, just had... Just Yeah. What? <laughs> like, I know. oh, God. And then certain celebrities as well. Like, I, I don't know why, but I would just get really angry. And, and I wouldn't know it was in there brewing until it came yeah. out in this, like, really bizarre way. Yeah. I get it. I that. When um, when I see people not being nice to their kids on the tube or on the... You know, like, just... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Just... And I, I appreciate... Like, I've looked after a lot of kids. I know it's not all fun and games. And I know I've flipped it. You know, it's not it's not that I'm being unrealistic and have idealised being mm-hmm. a parent. Um, it's but there a, are some really bad people. I mean... <laughs> Out there. Some people are like, yeah. But... Um, it's it's a it, it's not irrational, but it it's not necessarily always logical. The reactions you mm-hmm. have, that's it. Um, and I find myself doing that weird thing where I sit and just look at a, <laughs> look at a, a family and just smile like some weirdo. <laughs> just like, oh, doesn't that look lovely? Like it's, it's odd person on transport watching other families. But um, 
but yeah it does come out it comes out when you don't expect yeah and I think that's part of my kind of reticence to talk about it openly because I don't know how I'm going to react to what I say and I feel like someone could say something that would, and the fear of like not being in control of your reaction yeah is a big thing yeah I think it something that Terry was saying about like n- knowing who you're talking to yeah. is a really big thing I mean yeah. I remember someone that I worked for and she knew that I had lost the pregnancy and knew that that was my one shot and uh, she said you should really get a dog yeah so you have something to love yeah I mean you yeah and you're like I mean, I'd really like to be compassionate about these people and, and be, well, they don't know what they're saying. But there are some things we are like, yeah. I mean, really. That you have to kind of steal yourself, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of being really. Yeah. I've actually come up to talking about, like, how you respond to people when they ask the questions. And I found myself often when people say, have you got kids? And I'm like, no. And they're like, would you like kids? I'm like, yeah, because I would like kids. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not that's not an, an, a lie. Mm-hmm. or um yeah it's kind of it's quite I find it's quite a nice yeah that would be lovely you know it's I'm still stating the truth it's just it doesn't involve explaining to you my whole medical history oh I, I like that mm. I like that answer I'm always really surprised when people are still <laughs> people have sort of said still got time and I'm like do, do you know, do you know? I <laughs> yeah I, there's a little part of me that's like you know when I'm 50 I won't have to deal with this anymore <laughs> like yeah. people aren't going to still be like oh well you know you still could yeah. it's like no no yeah. actually actually no and but it is amazing I mean I do wonder how often the boys get asked this question like it, it is a, an, an amazing preoccupation with women of a certain age mm-hmm. whether they've got fertility issues or not um, my single friends of I'm 38 and it's kind of Anyone in their mid to late thirties is asked regularly by all sorts of people. Yeah, it's just like a you've got some ownership over everyone's life choices or not choices. You know, it's um, I mean, there's three of us obviously talking today, all women. Um, but in reading around the subject, um, they don't even keep numbers on how many men have children, but they do on how many women do and at what ages. Um, there's a real lack of um, research into um, how men feel about not having children. But in some um, sort of limited studies, there's even been some studies that men feel it more acutely um, in terms of depression. Um, So I think the numbers were like 38% to women's 27%. Um, But again, these are very small scale studies. So it's there's just a real lack of of knowledge and understanding yeah. on, on on both ends you know that intrusiveness I think into women and then this actual sort of lack of um, support for men um, yeah. in that position and, and neither are helpful right. <laughs> like, so we're really nailing it on the support in this country but I think that's why it's so important to find someone that you can have those conversations yeah, with. Definitely, because um, it can really save you. One of one of the things that um, I was reading was um, about how to know that, that you're having um, feelings about um, not being a parent, and I'm just gonna turn a page real quick make a bunch of noise so it was about um experiencing walking depression and uh, loneliness 
hopelessness, low self-esteem, shame, feelings of failure, bitterness. Oh, um, sounds like we, we pretty much nailed those this afternoon, haven't we? I think, I think. What's, what's walking depression as opposed to... Oh, numb. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which I suppose when you have kind of that evolving grief, there is an yeah. element of just yeah. being numb yeah. for a period of time. I was going to say, I really, really identify with your description of that. That sort of building, something's going to break here, that kind mm-hmm. of wave that's just... Um, I think that feels... I have never identified it as that, and that feels so familiar that that must be, or may well be, something a lot of people feel. That I think because there is no... There is no break there's no like you said there's no immediate loss there's no I had this and then I lost this Mm -hmm. it was like I've never had it it was an idea of what it might have been yep how do you grieve something that you weren't guaranteed in the first place it's like sort of aspiring to have an amazing job and never quite making it. It, it it was never there you never knew what it looked like and so how do you but it's and it's also a continual thing because it's it doesn't end. So I was at a client's house who is a grandma and she has all the pictures mm. of her grandchildren yes. on the mantelpiece. And it's like, okay, so once you get over grieving being a mum, if you do, yeah. um, or maybe you don't, maybe you accept it and integrate it and and live with, you know, both the grief and the possibility, then there is the... yeah. It's ongoing. Isn't it's it? ongoing. You and know. it goes like just when you, you know, if I'm at a family event and I go and spend time with my parents, it's that relationship. It's the relationship of a grown-up parent and their grown-up mm-hmm. kid. Like yep. all the teasing and but caring and you know all that stuff that you think. It's not just about not having a baby. Right. It's it's about not having a child for life, and that's that's big. <laughs> It doesn't really get much bigger. No. It might not get much bigger than that. So, like, in the process, like, we really have to be super kind to ourselves and catch ourselves when we are internalising that shame. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah, figuring out places to kind of, yeah, go through, go through the grief and figure out some possibility. So, yeah, big stuff. Big stuff. Um, so, you know, put that on your uh, to-do list. <laughs> Um, but also know that you can um, check out Shine Cancer Support's um, webpage and Facebook and you'll find other people on there in similar positions um, and that's always a good place to go and um, Terry Wingham's um, A Fresh Chapter if you want to check out more of what she's doing Claire, thank you so much for oh, being here today pleasure. and uh, thank you Terry and we'll see you soon for more of Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show Till next time, bye Thank you.